Our text for this afternoon's sermon comes to us from 1 Samuel 16, the verses 1 through 13. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing as I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he was sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So far the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters of our Lord, one thing that you have to come to terms with as a Christian is that God, God does not do things our way. And that shouldn't really re- surprise us because this is something that, that God himself says in Scripture. We can think of a passage like Isaiah 55 verse 9. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. God does things from an altogether different perspective. And that shows in the way that he uses unexpected people and unexpected events. God's story, it's not written at all the way that that we would write the story. 
For which one of us would have thought that, that something like Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, that that would turn out to be a good thing? Which one of us would have thought that 400 years of slavery or 70 years of captivity, that that would have been a a necessary part of the people of God and of their history? Would we have envisioned that God would use the sinful and rebellious nature of the people of Israel so that he could open up the way of salvation to so many? None of us would have thought that. And you know, we wouldn't have used the same types of people that God would have used either. Would Ruth, the, the Moabite, a pagan, an unbeliever, would she have been part of our story? Would Rahab, a prostitute? Would we have had our central character, Christ the King, be born from the family of a simple carpenter? Well, of course not. It's not the kind of king that we want, and, and that's not the kind of story that we want either. We would have had a story with a lot more glitz and a lot more glamour. We would, have, we would have cut down on some of the negative stuff. You might say that we would have had a story that is, that is much more marketable. And that's exactly because we don't share the perspective of God. Our thoughts, they're not his thoughts. And our ways, they're not his ways. And we'll see that today in God's choice to anoint David as the new leader of his people Israel. And so I preach to you God's word this afternoon under the following theme, God chooses an unlikely new king. And we'll see three things. In the first place, we'll see this unexpected command to anoint a new king. Then we'll see the unexpected character of the new king. And finally, we'll see the unexpected choice of a new king. Now our passage begins by introducing us to this this grieving Samuel. Samuel's discouraged, he's distressed. And if we actually take some time to put ourselves in Samuel's shoes, well, then we begin to understand exactly why he's grieving. I mean, Samuel is a man that loved the Lord. Samuel had devoted his, his entire life to the service of the Lord. The people recognized him as a prophet from God. And yet Samuel's own life had been filled with hardship, had been filled with disappointment. We're told that even though Samuel loved God, his sons did not. In fact, they're described as wicked men. They were not fit to lead the people of God. And, and so because of this perceived lack of leadership, the people of God had come to Samuel and they'd said, well, we want a king. We want a real king, just like the other nations. Even though Samuel had told them time and again that God was their king. But Samuel had witnessed God grant the request, and and so he'd obeyed and he'd gone and anointed Saul. And yet within Samuel's own lifetime, he'd witnessed Saul become proud in his own eyes. He'd witnessed Saul go astray. He'd witnessed Saul look towards his own strength and his own wisdom. And so ultimately, he had witnessed God reject Saul as king. And you have to try and imagine what this would have looked like from Samuel's perspective. Here he was, a man who had served the Lord his whole life. And now it seemed like they were right back at square one. 
It seemed like it had all been for nothing. They were just as stubborn and, and just as sinful as they'd ever been. The only difference was that now they were led by a stubborn and a sinful king. But it's at this point that God comes to Samuel with a bit of a reminder. He reminds Samuel that, that nothing happens outside of his control. Nothing happens outside of his will. He says to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king? It was God that had rejected Saul. Saul's kingship, it wasn't some type of a, a mistake. It wasn't an oversight by God. But it was part of his plan. God used Saul to show the people what would happen when they put their trust in a human king rather than in God, their king. God showed them that Saul, like so many others, he would go astray, he'd become proud of himself, he'd look to his own strength. And it was because of this that God rejected him. But that rejection, we have to remember, that it actually happened quite a bit earlier. And that was what we read about in 1 Samuel 13. There God's clear that Saul, because of his sin, because of his sin, God says to him, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and he'll appoint him as the leader of his people. So here we have Samuel who's just dwelling on the rejection of Saul, but he's kind of forgotten about the fact that God had already chosen someone else. And so God comes to Samuel and he tells him to get up and to go to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, because there, there he'll find the new king. There he'll find this man after God's own heart. And yet our text tells us that, that Samuel's still a bit uncertain about God's command. He doesn't, he doesn't really want to go. Because Israel, they still have a king. They have this man named Saul. And it's not like Saul is going to take very kindly to the concept of Samuel going and anointing a new king. And the very fact that Samuel actually has to bring this up it just shows us how far Saul has walked away from God. Yes, God had told Saul that the kingship would be taken from him and given to another, but it's clear that Saul was not going to give it up without a fight. It's not hard to imagine that Saul would have kept tabs on Samuel. I mean, Samuel was still an influential person among the people of God. He was their former leader, and so Samuel, he probably had good reason to be afraid. And yet God comes to him and he calms his fears. And God gives him a reason to go to Bethlehem. He tells, he tells him to go and to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And we have to remember that Samuel was still the representative of the, of the people before God. He still had responsibilities and roles. It was still part of his duties to intercede for the people. And so something like a sacrifice to the Lord that would not have drawn a lot of attention. And so with this command, Samuel goes. But the people of Bethlehem, they seem terrified by his appearance. And we can only assume that they thought he was bringing some type of bad news or he, 
maybe some type of punishment. And so they ask him, do you come peaceably? And he says, yes, I've come peaceably. In fact, he invites them to go in and to purify themselves and then to join him at this sacrifice. And we get the sense here that the story, the drama is building. God is, is about to reveal the new king of Israel. And yet before he does so, God teaches us this important lesson about the differences between the things that he values and the things that we value. Because Samuel, he was expecting a king like Saul. He was expecting a a man among men. A king who was a force to be reckoned with. But our text shows us that God was looking for something else. And we'll see that in the second place, in the unexpected character of this new king. Now one thing we have to remember when we look at our text is, when we're getting to verse 6 and 7, it's clear that, that Samuel does not yet know exactly who will be king. Yes, God has told him to go and, and to, show, to show up at the house of Jesse in the town of Bethlehem. But that's as much as he's told him. He simply said that when you get there, then I will show you who will be king. And so as the people begin to arrive for this sacrifice, you have to imagine that Samuel was, was curious. He was probably looking at the people wondering, well, who is it going to be? And we get the sense from our passage that when Eliab, Jesse's oldest, walks in, that Samuel's curiosity is suddenly satisfied. This guy, he thinks, this one has to be the one. And we can only imagine that Eliab, he must have been something to look at. He must have been big and broad and handsome. A man who stood out from the crowd, who had confidence and dignity. In fact, he must have reminded Samuel a lot of Saul. But this was exactly the problem. Because Samuel's attitude showed that he had not yet fully learned the lesson of Saul. Because Saul, Saul had all of the characteristics that the people wanted in a king. And yet he lacked the one thing that God wanted most. So God teaches Samuel in verse 7, he says, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. God was teaching the people that the king, he could be big and strong and brave. He could be this great and courageous warrior. But if he did not have a heart for God, then it was all for nothing. Because God's people don't need a great king according to the world's standards. Because they already had a great king. God's greatness is not dependent on people. Instead, what we see throughout Scripture is that God uses people, and often unexpected people, in order to draw attention to his greatness, in order to bring glory to his name. And that's not, that's not just an Old Testament thought either. That's something that we see in the New Testament as well. 
A passage like 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 to 29 says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God chooses people who are nothing special by earthly standards in order to draw attention to how special he is. And that's something that you see throughout Scripture. Think about it. God uses Jacob, a cheater. God uses Ruth, this this Moabite, this unbeliever. He uses Rahab, a prostitute. Peter, a liar. Paul, a murderer. He uses Lazarus, who's dead, so that he can show that he is not held back. He's not limited by the weaknesses and the shortcomings of people. God's glory isn't dependent on us. And that shows in the way that he values things differently than we value things. And maybe we should stop once in a while to actually ask ourselves, what are the things that we value? Are we people who, who are consumed by our careers? Are we people who are obsessed by how much money we make? By the kind of salary that we earn? Are we people that think a lot about wanting to have that body, that shape, that figure that's glamorized on TV? Do we define ourselves by, by how much we weigh, how thin we are, how tall we are, how athletic we are? What is it that actually matters to us? You know, none of these things, they're not wrong in and of themselves, but it is about priorities. We ought to be people who value in our lives the things that God values. We need to place our desire and our efforts towards being people after God's own heart. So do we do that? Do we make as much time for, for personal Bible study and prayer as we do for making sure that we maybe have time to, to go to the gym or time for our, our personal cosmetics and our hair and, and those sort of things? Do we make sure that we have as much time for Bible study or being part of a small group as we do as making sure that we have time for our hobbies and our sports? Where is it that God ranks in our life? We have a calling, brothers and sisters. We have a calling to be people after God's own heart. To be people who value the things that God values. Now we recognize that in our lives, in this life, we're not going to be able to do that perfectly And for that reason, we have all the more reason to give thanks that God actually has sent us one who has. Because in Jesus Christ, we have this perfect man, this perfect king, the one who rules over an ultimate and an everlasting kingdom. And yet he was not a man who conformed to the expectations of this world. In fact, Isaiah 53 verse 2 tells us that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
Jesus, he was not a man of external appearances, and yet he really and truly was a man who valued the things of God because he had the heart of God. He loved God with everything he had, even unto death. He was oppressed, and yet he showed humility. He loved others more than himself. He represented all kinds of things that the world despised, and so they rejected him because they didn't want a king like that. And you know, they, they still don't want a king like that. And yet this, this is the type of king that God knows that we need because he's the kind of king that no earthly king would ever be. And we see that throughout Scripture. All of the earthly kings would always be men with, with shortcomings, men with weaknesses. And yet God would use them. God would use them in order to further his plan. And it's a reminder to us that God can use anybody, even those that we least expect. And we'll see that in our final point with his unexpected choice for a new king. Now Samuel, Samuel was probably a bit disappointed that that his choice for king Eliab was not God's choice. And yet the good news is that Jesse had a number of sons. And so Samuel has them brought before him one by one, but as they come before him, God says, well, I haven't chosen this one, or this one, or this one. And you can imagine that there's probably somewhat of an awkward moment when, when Samuel runs out of candidates. And so he looks at Jesse and he says, well, you wouldn't happen to have any, any other sons, would you? And Jesse says, well, yes, yeah, there, there, there's one more, the last one, David, but, but he's out with the sheep. David is such an unlikely candidate that he hasn't even been invited. And most commentators suggest that he was, he was just a boy, maybe 10, 12 years old. And yet now Samuel is convinced that this one, this one at last is the one. And so he tells Jesse to go and to have David brought in. And he refuses to sit down until David comes. And we're told that when David comes before him, God says, yes, this is this one is the one. But why? Why him? What is it about this youth, a boy really, that makes him a man after God's own heart? Was it his boyish good looks? Was it his, his handsome futures? The text clearly says that he had those. And yet we see just earlier that God made clear that he does not focus on the external appearances. That's not his priority. The one thing that we have to recognize this afternoon is that there was nothing particularly special about David at all. This isn't really a story that is about David or Samuel for that matter. But it's a story that's all about God's ability to use anyone. God, God could have used Eliab. He could have used Abinadab. He could have used Shammah. He could have used any one of the other brothers. And yet God chose David. 
Not because David was more deserving or because he was a better person. I mean, all we have to do is to look at David's life and and to realize that he'd be a man with some serious shortcomings. He proved to be an adulterer and a murderer. David would fall far short of the character that God required. And yet God chose him. Because David's kingship was not about David. It wasn't about how righteous, how good, how brave, how courageous David was. Instead, David's kingship, it was all about what God would do through David. David was simply the one on whom God chose to to bestow his favor and his grace and his mercy. And the text tells us that that's something that's publicly symbolized by this anointing, this outpouring of oil. And we're told that actually from that day forward, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. David was just the man who received the anointing of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord, the one who got the strength and the wisdom and the grace that comes from the Lord. And and the the, the picture that we actually receive here of David receiving this anointing and having the Spirit come down upon him, it points us forward to Christ. In fact, later on, many years later, in in a synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus would stand up and he would read from the scroll of Isaiah, from chapter 61, and he would say of himself, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus Christ, he was in the truest sense the anointed one of God, the chosen one of God. And at his baptism, we we receive this, this visible image of the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove Jesus was that true and perfect king that God's people needed. He wasn't one who would falter, one who would succumb to temptation, but he would love God's people with his whole heart the way that a perfect king should. And by God's grace, we today were invited to share in that kingship, not because of who we are or because of what we've done, But we're told that it's simply by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ, we too share in that kingship. And the Holy Spirit is able to do amazing things in our lives. He's able to use the weakest of us, the most unexpected of us, those who struggle with sins daily, and God still uses us to further his plan And David's life is an amazing illustration of this. In David, we have this picture of God working in the life of a man, a sinner. And we see God bending and shaping and molding him into the type of person that God wanted him to be. And by the grace of God, that's what's happening in our lives today. We're people with with many shortcomings, people with a lot of issues, and yet God is able to work in us so that we're able to be better husbands, better fathers, better mothers, wives, employers, employees, co-workers. 
For the one thing we know, and the one thing that we can rest assured of, is that if Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, then the Spirit will be working in us. And He will bend us. He will shape us. And He'll mold us into the type of people that He wants us to be. Amen.